Hi, I'm Tom Payne, and you are listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. I was a good father. But you? You were never a good son. You're going to kill me. Ten seconds ago. That's when you decided. There's no other way. Yes, there is. Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking the Prodigal Son finale, episode 13 of season two, The Last Weekend. Which finale? Well, that remains to be seen. As of now, this series finale. It was very sad, Sheila. I don't know if you noticed when they put this up in screeners, they had series finale in like the title, which no show ever does in the description. I was like, oh, that was an unnecessary hammer in my heart. Well, I have been taking to Twitter quite aggressively with the the save prodigal son hashtag and i've been participating in the daily tweet fests that have been happening around eight o'clock eastern time where they've been tweeting different things per day like yesterday was beware the heels hashtag beware the heels day before was hashtag save the turtlenecks hashtag save sunshine the day before so i've been tweeting up a storm and yvonne phillips and lou diamond phillips and keiko again have been tweeting and retweeting at these hours as well. So to date, we're at just under 500,000 tweets since the cancellation. Wow. And there is a tweet fest planned for the finale, which will probably be somewhere in the vicinity of like 40,000 tweets. We imagine based on last night's activity was over 20,000 tweets. That's fantastic. The Save Prodigal Sun Army is out in force confusing people on Twitter about why turtlenecks need to be saved and why you need to watch your heels. Many confused people taking to social media. uh, Always entertaining. Yes. Why are the turtlenecks endangered? Well, you'll have to click to find out. (laughs) I mean, listen, people are doing their sleuthing. The uh, internet, the the Prodigal Son family has become their own version of the Killabusters. Some good sleuthing on Tom Payne's Instagram recently in his stories. So it disappears kind of like Snapchat. He had a boomerang video of being outside of Warner Brothers lot with the Warner Brothers, the Animaniacs, Warner Brothers, like water tower Mm -hmm. uh, in the background. So who knows what? that's a cryptic sign of warner brothers does own the show they are the production company you know pays the bills to make the show if it was going to get revived somewhere say on hbo max it that would be because of warner brothers so and there's some news today as so we're recording this on monday news today broke that at&t is divesting itself of hbo max and basically merging it with discovery i mean all of warner media yeah all of it's yeah so but i mean like hbo max being like it's larger what i've been focused on for the last couple of days so for me, that seems like a bright light because if the push is for streaming services, I'm optimistic that with all the activity and with the fact that this is such a, a niche kind of a show, that this would get picked up by something somebody like HBO Max. And then Jessica could allow her flying fuck to actually come out. Uh, I'm optimistic. I, I, I think that there's enough of an audience and that there's enough activity. And the fact that this also came as quite a shock to the cast, it seemed like. 
I have a feeling that this will get picked up somewhere. Fingers crossed. This is airing right after you guys have watched the finale, whatever finale it is. The earliest you would possibly hear if there was really some hot button news would literally be probably the same time that you're hitting play on this podcast. If there is going to be pickup news, it probably won't happen for a day or so, probably up to a week or two weeks after the finale. If something has been worked out, that's when it's going to be announced. You know, you are in the middle of upfronts. This is when all of the networks, less so the streaming services, but all of the networks are taking to their various days to state that they have staked out where they announce their fall lineups and they announce what their programming is going to look like for the next year. That's all happening right now. Uh, we are just starting the upfront season. So, you know, this is the time when shows do get picked up. You know, everything that's been in pilot season, you know, pilot season traditionally runs from the end of the year previous through January, February. And now you have then the network sit with the pilots. They figure out what they want to do. They pick up the shows. They announce them in May for, you know, what will be in the fall. That's the traditional lineup. It has changed so much, especially in the last few years. It is the season of shows being revived and shows being renewed and shows, you know, being canceled. Sadly, we're very sad about Prodigal Son. Those news. But, you know, ABC took the hatchet to five of its shows the day after Prodigal Son was canceled. CBS canceled, you know, I think three or four of its shows. It's it's the blooding, you know, the bloodletting season because the networks have to make way for their new programming, which unfortunately, you know, tends to go towards reality shows because Unscripted Fair is so much cheaper to make. You can do five seasons of Survivor probably for the cost of three or four Prodigal Son episodes. Five, four or five seasons versus, you know, three or four episodes of a show. Because But I'm allergic to reality shows. Like, I literally break out in highs because I'm like, no, give me something smart. Give me something produced. Give me something scripted because I want to be told a story. I don't want to be living someone else's life. 360 million people in this country and a fuck ton of them are addicted to reality shows. Uh, let me pull my soapbox out here. <clears throat> I'm dragging it. One... Guys, I get you're upset with Fox, but calling Fox names doesn't help the situation. Oh, no, not at all. Don't do that. Fox is the one that put the show on the air. You wouldn't have Prodigal Son without Fox. Fox is the only, the only network of the broadcast networks that ever takes chances on genre shows like this. The Passage, that's Fox. Mm -hmm. Next, that's Fox. Prodigal Son, that's Fox. You know, they they give these shows chances and they keep rolling the dice on them. And if people are going to go unhinged and say, I'm boycotting them, fuck you, fuck you, like it's personal. Well, they will stop doing those shows because why? Why? It's cheaper for them to make nine seasons of Gordon Ramsay Hell's Kitchen shows. So why don't we thank Fox for for introducing us to the show and taking a chance on it in the first place? That's the good karma way of approaching things. Things. And you know what? Maybe it gets caught up. Maybe it doesn't. But it shows need people to view it. You know, social media is great. But if you're not watching the show, you're not generating advertising dollars for them. And if you're not generating advertising dollars for them, then they can't keep putting the show on the air because you know what? Uh, Hell's Kitchen, MasterChef, uh, uh, Crime Scene uh, Kitchen, which is a new show coming out uh, in it's actually it's debuting in like a week or two on Fox. These shows make money. People watch them. Advertisers like those. So it's not Fox's fault that people don't watch a show. Fox gave the show life to begin with. Too many of us are losing sight of the fact that if it wasn't for Fox, 
we wouldn't know what Prodigal Son was. NBC didn't take a chance on it. CBS didn't take a chance on it. You know, if you're not a Law and Order show, you're not getting on NBC. If you're <laughs> if you're not a NCIS or a CSI spinoff, you're not getting on CBS. If you're not a comedy, you're not getting on ABC. Fox takes the chances on these kinds of shows, especially if you're tagging Fox in those posts. All you look like is an angry fandom. No one wants to be in business with an angry fandom. Be passionate, but be respectful. Show a good, positive fandom. Uh, show a fandom that truly loves a show and is willing to do 200,000 tweets in a week for it because they care so deeply about it. The amount of fuck Fox that I have seen in the last week is insane to me. It is the worst part of the internet. This idea that we can all be anonymous uh, and and have no manners in our discourse because we're on the internet is toxic and it is bad. It is a bad look. You use a bad look for the show. It is a bad look for all the other fans that are being respectful, that are out there having fun hashtagging and trying to be constructive and save the show. And and you know what? God willing, Fox is going to take a chance on another high concept genre show and i'm gonna love that one too i love i've loved all of these fox shows going back like thinking of the passage we we podcasted next uh in the fall i love next i wish it didn't run up against the world series and uh the presidential debates it got killed by scheduling and it was another tuesday night show yeah i'm i'll agree with that because i'm like i said i've been hashtagging pretty hard and any of the like the fat the fox bashing i'm like no no no, stay away from that because it's it's the wrong message and like you said it's not personal they're they're trying to make room for the one that the high concept show that will get the viewers that it needs to sustain it it's really about being respectful i agree with that and then you know just take to twitter and follow the rules follow the rules and we will get the results that we want i think yeah i mean honestly the best thing you can do even more than tweeting about it go find someone that has a tv that's not your tv and tell them to watch the show go over to your parents house and turn on their tv on tuesday nights whether they're watching it or not go to your nana's house and turn on her tv to tu- <laughs> on tuesday night to fox that's a that's a, 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 a an actual thing you can do to contribute um because viewership still matters yes do do delayed viewing uh does delay viewing matter a lot now yes all of the viewing matters that matters the most you know the the old nielsen system is largely broken at this point because so many people watch shows on delay and the networks know that but the overall viewer count still works go tell nana turn on fox you don't have to watch it nana just turn on fox at nine o'clock on tuesday please that's that those are the kinds of things you can be doing to to help your favorite shows not just prodigal son any show that you're worried about i mean people on uh, big fans of zoe's playlist i love zoe's playlist that's another limbo show right now if you love zoe's playlist going telling nbc that they're douchebags if they cancel it it doesn't help anything go tell people to watch it go tell people to stream it go tell people to download the music off of spotify and apple music anyway we're not here to talk about that we're here to talk about episode 13 the last weekend let's talk turkey by turkey i mean murder <laughs> sorry i've been coming across a lot of gifts lately so. <laughs> you are living in a gift, <laughs> gift world taking down a, a stroll down memory lane here the last weekend was written by sam slaver and nora and lila zuckerman and it was directed by chris greismer so sam is a series co-creator and therefore He's kind of the big gun that you'd expect to see on the finale. And the Zuckerman two are definitely some popular contributors. This being their fourth episode writing credit, they did Ouroboros earlier this season and Shahrazad and Alone Time back in season one. 
Chris Grisman, this is his fourth episode directing, having done a bunch of season two episodes, including Ouroboros, again, Bad Manners, and even last week's Sun and Fun. Uh, I mean, given the show's cancellation news last Monday, uh, I don't know if, if people heard that episode. We we recorded our interview with Tom Payne. Then we recorded the main episode that surrounds the interview. And literally, as we were stopping that, the news broke that the show had been canceled. So ever since Monday, just behind the scenes, it's been it's been a bit of a scramble to find a guest. Uh, you know, the cast is out, as, you know, some are campaigning to save the show. Others are trying to find where their next job is going to be. There's, you know, a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes right now. Uh, that being said, you know, everyone's kind of to the wind. And so we don't have a guest tonight, sadly, for our finale. So we're just going to be riding out this maybe temporary end of prodigal son with you uh just you guys and us but before we get started you should definitely check out that spotify playlist that we've created it's called the surgeon files playlist from pod clubhouse and it's a little bit of mood music to help you as we wait the days between now and the the renewal pickup hopefully fingers crossed I think this episode has a lot of cut scenes in it because I was seeing some pictures and some videos that are not in the finale. Uh, so I think there's actually a lot on the cutting room floor. And I think there was actually a bunch of, uh, based on some posts that Keiko made uh, if or and comments that she made recently, I feel like there's a bunch of Adresa stuff that got cut out of this episode. That being said, we did have a little bit of Adresa. It was a nice, you know, third wheel moment with her and Gil and Jessica at the end of the episode. So I was happy about that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk Adresa's corner at the very end of the episode. But we did not have a finally a final daily affirmation tonight, and we had no resolution on Sunshine. I'm hoping someone is still feeding him. I'm so hoping someone is going by the apartment. Enough people break into the goddamn thing, and hopefully they're giving Sunshine some food. That's that's my uh that's my biggest wish. But how did this episode feel to you as a finale? Let, let's talk season finale, and let's talk series finale. How did it hit you on both levels? Well, I'm not gonna like talk about it as a series finale because it wasn't really written as such you know whereas a series finale there's a lot more wrap-ups where this was more of a cliffhanger for me i liked how the themes were really resonant back to the pilot i watched the pilot quite recently you know we got the notion like we're the same martin seems to get confirmation that they're the same i liked how this wrapped up his his breakout of claremont arc the fact that him and malcolm got some alone time i liked this weird bonding that would happen between you know a, a profiler and a serial killer on the run but also a father and son which which is definitely the complex relationship that these two have had this there's this entire time and and just malcolm being with him in this way you see how just bewildered he is at times so it was it was jarring it was bewildering i, I like that word because it's kind of how i felt watching it I, I i enjoyed the action scenes that we got i i thought as a season finale this was really good as a series finale i i think we've been robbed of some some crucial plot points shows that there is no word on whether or not it's going to get renewed. But at, at the same time, the creators and, and the creatives still have to finish the season and they don't know. And if you're a bubble show and it's not a slam dunk that you're going to be renewed, you know, uh, the, the writers are often left in a position where they have to, they have to end the season the way they want to end the season, but they also have to, if, if they're, cognizant of what their position really is in the world they do give some thought to or they should give some thought to what does it look like if this is it and i think the very end of this episode though not ideal for a series finale 
works as a series finale better than most shows, better than most shows that don't have a chance to wrap up, that don't get like the lost package where or, or like the West Wing where they got to wrap the series with a planned end in mind you know lost famously was given an end date you know you have three more seasons and then the show is done and so they crafted towards that end the west wing knew at the end of the seventh season it was going to end and so they were able to craft towards that so there were definitive endings to that the sopranos ended because it knew it was going to end breaking bad was able to plan its ending you know this a show like this where you don't know and then it is the ending it very easily could have been no resolution. With Malcolm stabbing Martin, yes, that leaves a ton of cliffhangers for the end. But there is a closed loop on this father-son relationship. There, you know, Malcolm stabbed his father before, but stabbed his father towards an end to put off the carousel killer. That was a, that was a plot point moving you from A to B to C. Here, he stabs him in defense of his life or what he feels is the, the defense of his life. It is the denouement of these two. Martin has has realized he cannot run anymore, cannot run from his son anymore. And now they're facing each other. They're truly facing each other in, in a final feeling kind of way. And so is Martin dead? No, I don't think he's dead. I don't think that's actually what happens here. I think there's evidence here to show that Martin would live, that it was a calculated strike for Malcolm to put Martin down and not kill him. But it works as far as this son who has been haunted by the memory of his father finally confronted him when forced to and did something about it. And so I think from a series finale way, that is a, a main thrust plot of the show that the show confronted in this episode. And I think from a series finale, I think that works. I think it's not ideal. I don't think it's the best resolution they could have come up with. But if it's what we're left with, well, you know what? I'm going to take it and I can spin out what happened next in my head in the way that you often have to do with finales. Um, I think as a season finale, it's fantastic because, you know, with Danny saying, Bright, what did you do? And, uh, and he's standing over his father's body and he's got the bloody knife. That's classic season finale cliffhanger stuff. You spend the entire summer hypothesizing what happens when the show comes back for season three. And it's fantastic. You know, there there is no definite death of martin whitley here you could go so many ways with it you know there is you know the does malcolm go to jail for stabbing his father it becomes a case of uh he said she said or he said he said kind of thing you know did malcolm kill his father or was it self-defense there's so many things classic season finale cliffhanger the thing that was weird to me was that they tried doing or that they did a case of the week as part of this finale, that felt a little weird to me to introduce this woodsman and the missing and, and Jenny, uh, the missing girl and trying to find her, which is a typical weekly show setup for Prodigal Son. But doing that with the finale, with all of the stuff that they needed to wrap up, they needed to wrap up Vivian and Jessica. They needed to wrap up Martin and Malcolm being on the run and the escape. So doing the uh, doing a case of the week, that felt a little really 
to me. Uh, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't super sold on it. I thought it was a great episode, but the case uh, I think the Woodsman was a good episode in getting Martin to use his his serial killer profiling skills out in the real world was great. But as a finale season or otherwise, that felt a little weird to me. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It took up yes, it did because it took up a lot of room in the episode where I had more questions than I had answers. Um, which is what a season finale series finale is meant to do to an extent. Like I had more questions about Ainsley and what she was doing at Claremont and what help she was giving to Martin and what she was supposed to be. I wanted more Ainsley to answer some of those questions. I would have liked a longer fight between Milton Whitley and Vivian <laughs> Capshaw. I would have liked to see more of that. The Grace Jones coached Krav McGraw. I would have liked to have more wrap up. It, everything with Vivian felt fast. There, I feel there was more to have come out about that. Um, you know, the the conversation with Ruiz. So having the case of the week was was good because I mean it was interesting and and like you said, like Martin got to to showcase some of his skills and put on display for Malcolm that trying to get him to to believe that he's changed. Um, you know, and I know we're going to talk about that later on. I'm of two minds of it. I like the fact that it was there because it gave us the things that we love about prodigal son, it gave Martin a chance to to interact with Malcolm. It gave Malcolm a chance to, to hi- highlight his, his on point profile skills. We got the team involved again. We saw everybody, but in terms of wrapping up the big story arc that happened over the last three or four episodes, it just took up a lot of room for me. Yeah. I think that's a good call. Uh, what did, what did the murder weapon tally look like? Ugh, it was gross. There was a lumberjack hook. <laughs> That was uh, fairly graphic. Again, Pour one out for Crutch. Yeah, I feel bad. I can feel like he was maligned in this episode. But we did have some more attempted murder weapons. We had some Valium in, in a martini. We had a fireplace poker and a serrated Bowie knife. Yeah, and a picture of a young Ainsley, too. Yes. I, I mean, Jessica takes that the glass-shattering picture frame across the head like a champ. Uh, so I don't know. We're going to, we're going to get to, we're going to get to the, uh, Capshaw v. Milton Whitley battle royale in a little bit, but we're not quite there yet. Let's get ready to rumble. Let's get ready to rumble (laughs) in our very nice appointed uh, dining room. Well, previously nicely appointed. Now it's a disaster area. Uh, Last week, we pointed out the special guest star, Michael Kostroff, who, you know, didn't have a major role, but we like him when we see him pop up in shows. Uh, This week, I saw Eddie K. Thomas in the credits, and I was like, oh, he's pretty, pretty well known, you know, for a guest starring role. I'm curious, is he going to be the woodsman? Like, what's his role going to be? I, I expected him to play a bigger role in this episode and the way it played out, other than just being really hot for Ainsley. I got to tell you, I was a little disappointed. I felt like he was a little underused. Uh, maybe he's, he's just a fan. Maybe he was just a fan of the show and he wanted to appear on it. But he's a pretty big name just to have, you know, third sheriff uh, billing. Right. So I'm actually bummed we did not get JT's name. I know. I think of all of the reveals and all of the answers that we were looking for, this is definitely obviously not the most important one, but I think this was a popular fan question that doesn't seem like it's going to get answered or or it didn't get answered tonight. And I don't know if we ever will. Uh, If we had Sam and Chris on tonight, I was definitely going to be a question I asked them. It was already on my to-do list. And, you know, just also what his baby's name is. That would have been nice. A baby. I believe it's baby, just, baby, just, Tarmel. Ba- baby Tarmel, baby Tarmel, JT Junior, JT BT, or yeah, BT BT. I like JT BT. JT BT. He uh, shall so be christened. Can Martin change? 
has Martin changed or is Mel- Malcolm right in the end? This becomes a big theme of this episode. I like themes. I like thinking about what's the unifying theme of an episode. And this one was very much about can you change? If Can you change your psychopathy? Can you change who you really are if you are a serial killer? Let's listen to this clip. I did everything. I shared the letters. I saved Jeannie. I was done being that man. But you, you just couldn't believe it, could you? So you made me become him again. You ruined everything. It's not how psychopathy works. It's who you are. No, you tricked me. You asked me to help. I was trying to be a good father! You don't belong out here. This world isn't for you. Dad, listen to me. I'm trying to save you. Did Martin really change? Can Martin really change even? Malcolm says no. What do you think, Sheila? I actually have some pretty strong feelings on this. I don't think it's possible for him to change. Last episode, not last episode, two episodes ago during exit strategy, Malcolm tells the team when they're, they find the, the EMT workers in the ambulance that, that Martin said that this wasn't about murder and that he believes that, Martin believes that, but it's a delusion. And, and Malcolm says delusion is a powerful tool and he's going to want to have his actions match his self-concept for as long as possible. What I think is actually going on is that Martin has developed some coping mechanisms for his psychopathy, for his for his problems existing in society, where he now believes that he's changed enough that he no longer has those urges. I think it's more the fact that he's able to control them a little bit more, but they're always there. Psychopathy does not go away, like Malcolm said. It's not something that can be cured. It's something that can be controlled usually through medicine, usually through therapy. And Martin's had 23 years of of therapy and possibly medication. I don't know. I never saw him taking pills, I don't think. But it's not something that can fully go away. He's always going to have that underlying urge. It's not something that he's going to just poof be cured of. It's not like, you know, like if you have a headache and you take Tylenol, you have an infection, like I have a cold, and you take antibiotics or something and it goes away. Uh, It's not the same thing. It's something like a birthmark. It's something you have for life. I think that's right. And I think that's an important distinction that Martin is missing because it's himself. And so I don't think he's seeing himself clearly, as we often don't see ourselves clearly. You know, we often have a version of ourselves of what we think of ourselves, but that doesn't necessarily always jive what other people see or what the actual truth is. And I think Martin can suppress his true nature. I think everyone can suppress their true nature. Uh, But you can only do that for so long 
before, you know, your devils reach up and take control again. Malcolm had to kind of, you know, had to coax him into torturing the woodsman in order to find out where the girl was hidden tonight. But it would have only been a matter of time, like blood in the water and, you know, uh, Bruce the shark in Nemo having to remind himself that fish are friend, not food. You know, there was only a matter of time before Martin would have snapped and gone back to his ways because you can suppress your nature, but you can only do that for so long. That is not a that is not an end goal plan. Malcolm understood that. And Malcolm in this episode, a couple of different times and in a couple different ways, manipulates Martin because he is playing on this idea that Martin is trying to put forward this best face he's trying to put this best foot forward of i am a changed man ever since that voicemail and and so malcolm uses that and plays into that in order to get martin to do what he needs him to do tonight but malcolm as it turned out was never fooled was was never uh, fooled beyond thinking that the outside world is not a place for martin whitley it's what we talked about last week malcolm wants his father alive but he wants him alive inside claremont where he can check on him and know where he is at all times for a a storyline that played out ever since that voicemail but really the entire series if you think about it i thought was really nicely wrapped up and played out and explained to martin and explained to us very well and and in a way that didn't feel condescending but in a way that made a lot of sense and i and i thought i think I think Tom and Michael executed these scenes very well, all of the I'm a Change Man scenes. But this scene that we just played, this clip that we just played from the end, very end of the episode, was really, really such a, I think, a thesis statement for the entire series. Uh, and that's why I wanted to play it kind of up front here before we even got to our character by character look. Uh, because I think it is, I think it's the linchpin of this entire episode. It was that important to me. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, That being said, let's dive deeper now into Cameron and Claire. I mean, uh, Malcolm and Martin. (laughs) You know, we just played a clip from the very end of the episode where, you know, all the pretenses dropped and these two are now squaring up against each other. But that's not how the episode began. The episode began with Martin trying to convince Malcolm, uh, you know, that he he is not a threat, that he is a changed man. And, you know, it's interesting. Malcolm jumps back when he sees that switchblade come out. And it just reminds you how how much fear Malcolm really has of his father and how dangerous Martin really is and the way he's perceived. But this this line from Martin really struck me. I want to play it. Trust your old man for once. I didn't kill you. That's got to count for something, right? Does it? That's that's not a Hallmark card. I didn't kill you. That's got to count for something. Does that have to count for something? I mean, that would really put a kibosh on the whole I'm a change man argument. I think if you killed Malcolm right away. Well, when you're talking with a serial killer who has a body count nearing a d- two dozen. Yeah, not having killed you does count for something. And he's he's very dangerous. And Malcolm is his body language is letting Martin know that I, I think you're a dangerous man. So yeah, it does count for something. I'm always curious when Ma- when Martin sees Malcolm recoil like that. And he recoils in a way that even Jessica and Ainsley don't. And it's interesting because I think Malcolm is so haunted in such a specific way, not only by his father, but by this idea of that maybe he is like his father. He recoils in a in a 
in such a visceral, a visceral, animalistic, like scared prey kind of way to Martin. But yeah, jumping back when he's when he's tied to the chair, when he sees the um, the switchblade come out, the uh, shaving switchblade come out, really reminded me how damaged Malcolm actually is. That to live in that kind of fear of this man who's your father, that's it's really really sad. It made me feel bad for Malcolm. There's damage to Malcolm that the others don't have and it's never been resolved in the 25 intervening years and i just don't think it's ever going to get resolved and now he's going to be confronted with all of that trauma and now being in a motel room with martin so there's there's new traumas that are going to manifest from this it's just I, i think that his trauma is specifically so different than the others that this is why he has this caged animal fear about him so by choosing the name claire is martin like subconsciously missing claremont it seems like a really conspicuous name to choose especially when you add on a big bushy dirty blonde beard yeah i i, I had the same thought claire claremont it seemed i mean i think that i think his line you know I, i've always respected men who have ladies names uh was funny and, and a very kind of martin thing to say especially when you follow it up with his i'm a bisexual comment uh about penmanship <laughs> about penmanship kind of thing and and malcolm has to say no no i don't know you're not and you don't understand how those things work all that together is kind of weird uh, it was kind of weird it was funny though um but i think it's a pretty transparent kind of like a, uh is a brick in uh anchorman when he's looking at the lamp and says i love lamp you know i think <laughs> I, I think it was a little bit like that martin was like i need a name claire mont claire claire i'm claire claire i'm claire <laughs> Maybe the last song he heard is Johnny Cash is a boy named Sue. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. And I think Cameron was just good alliteration. You know, oh, yeah. Ca- Cameron and Claire. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think that's Martin just having some subconscious feelings. Martin knows he belongs in Claremont. That's the thing. That's the thing that I think Malcolm is trying to say say to him in that clip that we played earlier. Like that, he he says he says, "Dad, I'm yeah. trying to save you." It's this idea of I don't want you dead, but you can't be out in the world. And I think Martin understands that in the same way Friar Pete. You know, the remember the profile on Friar Pete, Friar Pete was mm-hmm. uh, freedom won't suit him. Yeah. It's it's just not built for it. Martin Martin is the same way because I think he's been in captivity for so long and being in captivity has allowed him to be the change man that he wants to sell himself on and sell others on. The risk of temptation to become your old self is so great when you're out in the world free. Martin needs the routine of Mr. David and and Claremont. Right, that structure. Uh, yeah, he needs that structure, and he and, and his subconscious knows that. And I think the subconscious is kind of sending him a message by, you know, why don't you use Claire as a name? He's like, <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. So, yeah. Uh, were you surprised that we got? I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but were you surprised that the finale was framed with a case of the week? When you went in before you pressed play, did you think we were getting a case of the week tonight? And did you think that was going to involve a brand new serial killer we've never heard about before that would be solved in one episode? Well, you set me up for it last week when you played the um, the blurb for this week. So I was like, okay, there's going to be a serial killer. I'm like, why? Because there's so much that's going to need to be wrapped up, and that's going to take up a lot of Malcolm's, you know, mental capacity and profiling and trying to save himself and save Martin from the U.S. Marshals. So there there was a lot going on that I was just like, I don't know if it needed a case of the week. I liked the fact that it 
took them where it did. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it. I, I just had, I have so many questions then about the case of the week and Martin's role in it. Like how much research did he do and stuff like that. I mean, the way that this episode played out, I liked what I was given, but I, I, I had, I had questions that I needed to have resolved. <laughs> I, when I read that we were going to have the woodsman, I, for, I don't know why. I thought it was going to be some kind of closed case thing. I, I, I had in my head that Ainsley was going to be involved with her father's case files. So I was actually pretty close in my own headcanon on that aspect, I guess. But I, I thought it was going to be some kind of closed case that M- Martin w- would have been drawing on or or some or taking up the mantle of this of the serial killer that was from the past. Not that we would have an active serial killer in Maple Mountain, Vermont, and, and be trying to solve it as what? As a way to clear Malcolm's name as being an accomplice to Martin's escape and what happened to Vivian, and to demonstrate that Martin is a changed guy because he ca- helped capture another serial killer. Th- that I did not guess. I, I, that was not in my purview of, of things that would have happened. This episode, watching it and just hearing you describe all of that, if you've only seen this episode once, it's not enough. Not in the fact that like so much happened, but there's so much nuance that happens in the dialogue that it, it does warrant a second watch because I watched this the first time and I was like, huh? And I went back and watched it a second time and even more just to get ready for this. But it does need a second pass through to catch because the dialogue between Martin and Malcolm, there's so much like when they're there in a diner and when they're sitting outside, when they're in the, the truck, even when they're in the cell. There's a lot that goes on, and it's like, okay, so he's going to catch the serial killer in a way to exonerate Malcolm. I'm like, oh, how does that work? So, yeah, it definitely warrants a second watch just to to kind of get everything. So, so Martin did a lot of research into the woodsman. It occurred to me watching it, and it occurred to me especially on the second time I watched it. Do you think it was just professional curiosity that he happened to know so much about the woodsman? Because we've seen Martin have knowledge of serial killers. He's been, you know, and and be able to draw on. And when Malcolm comes to him with a case over the last two seasons, he's often able to speak, you know, on on current and old killers. So is it just professional curiosity that he would have kept up on this rival or or this other serial killer operating out of Vermont? Or do you think that he put this extra research on the woodsman because it was always kind of part of the escape plan? Again, remember, that voicemail was, I'm a changed man. I'm not a killer anymore. I'm going to prove it to you. So is the woodsman, was that always part of his thing? Was like, I'm going to go to Vermont and solve this case with Malcolm? I think this was part of his his escape plan. I think this was his escape plan. And this was the way in which he was going to prove this to Malcolm more so and to the world that he is a changed man, that he was going to capture this active serial killer. Just having Malcolm along for the ride then became both a liability and a benefit because then it would be also a way for Malcolm to be exonerated like we just talked about. Because I was thinking like if there there was too much information that was known prior that Martin would not have had access to since he'd been out. So he had to be actively researching this guy, getting the letters, doing all of this stuff. And I think that that's some of the work that him and Ainsley were working on together. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I think this was part of his grand scheme of plans. And then just Malcolm being involved um, made it made it better in the sense that Malcolm then could be exonerated from, you know, being accused of being the accomplice that 
that Malcolm would have helped to to solve the case and to free this woman. But that's what I'm trying to like say when I said when I watched it a second time is that there was so much in that that all of these details that you need to go back and kind of see it a second time or watch with really like high eagle eyes if you haven't watched the episode already and you're listening to this first. I mean, my hypothesis is that the original plan, Martin's original plan was go to Maple Mountain with Ainsley and solve this case and then bring in Malcolm to come clean it up as a demonstration of I am a change man. So I don't think Malcolm was intended to be there the entire time like he ended up being tonight because, you know, Martin had a call and audible at the end of last week's episode. Right. My my gut instinct is that this was a plan. This was supposed to be a road trip for him and Ainsley to take to go catch a criminal. Yeah, that's the part that made sense to me, having Ainsley be part of it. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've done more than just doing research and, and running back and forth to Claremont. I think yeah, she, no, she I, would have I had agree like, with the whole your... file with her. Right, and, with the go yeah. bag. and, and... Yeah, right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree with that. So Crutch brought uh, Eminem or CNC. <laughs> Music Factory, they're going to make you sweat yeah. till you bleed, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a podcast unless you, you sing. You have to sing. I, I did not sing. I just said, I just, I, I, know, I did spoken te- word poem, and I'm sure I'll sing at some point later. On. It was teased. So he brought Malcolm and Martin into the station because he either recognized the surgeon or or he saw Malcolm on TV, or some combination of both. But given a man who's worked with the Woodsman case so closely, it seems like he might have known that his boss's husband was the killer before Malcolm connected the dots for him. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, right up until the point where he has a dawning realization on who the killer is because of what Malcolm is saying, I thought for sure he was in on it, him and Fern. And I knew it was Don. I knew it was Don pretty early on. He was too, just too creepy, a motherfucker with his, uh, yeah. his tuna and shit and, and his, his Tupperware food for lunch. He smelled like a bad guy. And he was like a big guy, too. Uh, so having seen like the trailers and stuff, I was like, it's definitely Don. But <laughs> uh, and Crutch was too obvious. You know, it was, I think, good profiling on Malcolm's part. And I yes. think I understood why he went after him. And obviously he made so much sense. But for all of those reasons, right up until it became clear Crutch didn't know or hadn't admitted it to himself. And I think that's what it really is more. I think that's what it was. I think Crutch knew in the back of his head or in his heart of who the woodsman was, but had kind of never said it out loud to himself because it was so close to home, because it was not like a third party, like an unknown third party, that it was, you know, Fern's husband. And he'd also had such intimate knowledge of each of these crime scenes. He was at four of them. The dawning realization on his face of it couldn't be interpreted to me was, oh, shit, it is. And I've just never said it out loud, but I've known it all along kind of thing. Uh, But, you know, listen, stupid people be stupid. And, you know, (laughs) some people, yeah, some people just can't admit what's in front of their face, even when it's, you know, screaming in their face. I thought it was an interesting little twist, but I think it also could have gone a couple of different ways, too. You know, it could have been very Scooby-Doo-ish. You know, where it turns out he's, uh, you know, he's working, he's like a, he's working for the woodsman, like he's Woodsman Jr. or something like that. <laughs> the sidekick. He's the Robin. Or, or Fern and Don are holding like his, his wife captive if he doesn't help them. Something like that. That was what I thought it was going to be until it was clear that he actually had never put it together himself. Does Malcolm realizing his father is scared when they both kind of come to in the murder barn? Do you think that that increases Malcolm's anxiety? Like him saying it. Again, it was one of those things where it's not true until you say it out 
loud. Him saying out loud, you're scared, and Martin admitting that he is, is it because Malcolm is seeing his father differently? Is he actually maybe considering that his father has changed because he's not used to seeing fear like this? Or is it just, it was more of like, a, oh shit, if, if my dad is scared, then this is really serious. You know, like we are at, we are at like the worst possible place it could be before we're dead. If, if Martin is even being scared. You know, this was a really interesting scene for me because Malcolm said it not as a question. He said, you're scared. Like he said it as a statement. He needed Martin to affirm it. Yes, he says it like a statement, but he says it after seeing Martin's body language and hear Martin say, you know, I don't think we're getting out of this one. Right. It's in response to what Martin says and, and the intonation in his voice. So I think he says it as a statement in the same way Crutch realized uh, you know, the dawning realization on Crutch's face. It was one of those things where he, it was a statement, but it was a statement like a question, though, because he was picking up on what Martin, the intonation of Martin's voice. Yeah, so I think it was um, a lot to do with the fact that Martin was out of practice, that Martin is believing that, you know, he is a changed man. So he, Martin's in some way coming to grips with his coping mechanisms, like, and this facade. It's like, how how am I going to get out of this? And the fact that he hasn't done this in so long, maybe he's thinking he's a little rusty. He still wants to believe the delusion. So I feel like there's this struggle going on in Martin in that moment where he is getting scared because he doesn't see a way out. He's not used to being in this situation. And now having been Vivian's captor just you know yesterday or the night before, depending on where this is going on the timeline... You know, he's in some uncharted territory for himself. And, and I think this is like his dawning realization that if I don't do something, this is going to be it for me and my son. And I think having Malcolm there, this added stressor for him, because we've seen the lengths that he's gone to to save Malcolm. I mean, he <laughs> took a speedboat and all the stuff that he did, you know, last episode to get away from Vivian and saving him having seeing all of that play out in Martin and trying to connect all of that to this larger theme of like, who is he really? Is he this changed person? I think you're seeing this struggle within him of him asking himself who he really is. Seeing Martin that way actually forces Malcolm to like hone in even faster on the problem solving ability that he has this innate problem solving ability that he's got and just, you know, figure out a way to come to some sort of conclusion where they don't both die. So I was really impressed with what played out, like, because I spent a lot of time thinking about, like, what was going on in that scene. So I was impressed with how much Michael Sheen was able to convey in just that, yes, you know, admitting that, yes, I'm scared, what that meant for Malcolm as well, and, and this in, this internal struggle with the two of them. Just as a general note, I mean, Michael Sheen and and Tom Payne are always fantastic and they are always good together. Seeing them out in the world together in this episode was really some next level. Uh, it was really some next level stuff for fans, but it was it was some next level acting. These two, I, I, I have in my notes that Michael Sheen deserves a, a nomination for Best Supporting Actor come the Emmys in September oh, for this episode alone. I mean, I think his body of work deserves him an Emmy nomination. The stuff he's doing in this episode is so fucking good. It would be a crime if he doesn't get recognition for it. And and him and Tom's chemistry is just so so good. The the push and pull of the magnets, their their magnetism to each other is, is palpable. It, it, it you feel it. You feel like you're there with them because they bring it to life so so good. How'd it happen, Don? 
deeper and find out what you are too late? Did you hurt her? Or did she find you? Is she really the one who's in charge? Her? Never. This is all me. Nothing like a misogynist who needs a woman to get the job done. So yeah, so this is really Malcolm's profile about how Don and Fern got started. So, And this line that he gives, nothing like a misogynist who needs a woman to get the job done. Like, you are going to just destroy anybody who's got this tendency and trigger them by, by saying something like this. I, I liked it because Malcolm is is clearly he's just trying to talk to Don because he's trying to buy time for his father. Like they've given like the nonverbal cues mm-hmm. for for Martin to like shake loose from the beam because it's loose. And so he's just stalling for time. But there's such a an, uh, there's such a Malcolmness about the scene. He has to profile the the guy has to profile. It's just what he like. Like we need like air to breathe. Malcolm needs to profile in order to survive. And I think I think he's genuinely curious as he's digging into, you know, how, you know, the story of Fern and Don, the the worst uh, John Cougar Mellencamp song ever, you know, uh, (laughs) Fern and Don, how they got started. I think he's like genuinely amusing himself trying to picture how these two got together. What's your best guess? Did. Don start this under Fern's nose and then it got too big for her to come clean with? Or do you think Fern is actually the master string puppet, uh, string puller here, and Don is just her murderous puppet? From the second we met Sergeant Cooley, I was like, there is something wrong with this bitch. Just her mannerisms and how she's so over the top when Don came in. I think she's like feeding his ego. I think this is all her. I think she is the like the true like sociopath behind this, where she's pulling the strings. She's you know giving Don what he needs. Like he needs the brute force, but she's the brains behind the operation. So I I liked where this this went because there are so many parallels to the Martin and Jessica relationship. You know Vivian calling out Jessica early. You know, um, Vivian earlier than this right because this is kind of almost almost happening simultaneously there were so many parallels between the the different types of relationships but i don't think that this was the same as martin and jessica i think that fern was in on it and and ainsley is really the one who honed that in for me saying that your daughters are going to know darkness on both sides because you're both in on it and the fact that she didn't that sergeant cooley didn't negate any of that really made me think that she had a larger part to play in this. And I think Don was just really just brute force and was able to do the intimidation. And I think that they both kind of weirdly got off on on the violence. Fern does give up, though, where he is, though, right? I mean, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, we could talk a little bit later about it. We could talk about it a little more later. But, you know, Ainsley's speech there persuades that persuades Fern to give up Don. So is that just her covering her ass or is she really the light here who's just gotten over her head? Wasn't the brains behind it, but just kind of felt powerless to stop it. You know, in the same way you see in like horror movies all the time kind of thing, like complacent, implicit uh, condoning of actions, you know, by saying nothing, you're saying something kind of thing. I I feel like that's the situation that, that Fern is in here. It's possible to. I'm not sure because we just didn't get enough details. But I think, you know, pulling at her heartstrings as a mom to 
involving her daughters, you know, is what she needed to do to, to give up on Don for the sake of her children. Is she going to roll on Don? For sure. Is she going to do it to get less jail time? For sure. But I also think Malcolm, you know, using a misogynist line at the end there, I think that was just to set the the short fuse that he was picking up from Don. He knew he had him on the edge. He knew he had him on the precipice. He just had to push him over so that he would go lunging, which would allow the con- the next stage of the confrontation to take place. And he had such a wicked look on his face when he said it, too. It was amazing. Malcolm <laughs> is in a weird place this entire episode. He is... He is the most devious he has been all show long, all series long in this episode. And and that gets me to my next question, because I'm curious what you I'm curious what the fans think. Also listening. What do you think of Malcolm using Martin as a tool of torture? He comes out and he says, I need you to go fuck that guy up. So he gives up with the location. And and Martin's like, no, I, I no, I, I no, I'm sorry. The girl's going to have to die. But at least I will have proved I'm not that guy anymore. And Malcolm even lies like, like bold face, no blinking, looks him in the face and says, I know you've changed. I see it. I get it. But I need you to go be the surgeon there for a couple of minutes and, and get and get a location for me. That's some next level fucking manipulation and lying coming from Malcolm. That's not really who Malcolm is that we have seen. You know, Malcolm crosses lines, but he usually doesn't cross. He usually crosses lines over his own safety, not using people as instruments of torture, which is what which is the only way I think you could describe how he manipulates Martin here. I don't think you're going to like what I'm going to say. I think that what Malcolm does here is further proof to Martin that they are the same. That Martin is this predatory psychopath and preys on people and uses his charms to get what he needs out of people. And Malcolm is doing the same fucking thing. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think this is the most Martin that Malcolm, Martin like Malcolm has ever been. Yeah. And I don't know whether or not Martin is picking that up there because even when he comes out, you know, he kind of smiles and he like, you know, pats his like, you know, his cheek and he's trying to reassure his son. He's trying to reassure his son and himself. He's like, we're not monsters. This is not bad. We're not monsters. We're doing this for the idea that the ends justify the means. Martin is resting all of his, all of his sanity, all of his delusion resting on the ends justifying the means and malcolm's leaning into that too yeah 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 you got to go torture this guy within an inch of his life but it's for a good cause it's for the right reason i don't think malcolm believes that for a second i think he knows what he needs to say to get martin to do what he needs him to do but that level of manipulation and using it and executing it so flawlessly so well practiced seeming i mean we saw malcolm kind of manipulate adresa earlier in this season mm-hmm. when she's in her fancy gown and he wants her to run the pig's blood dna malcolm does have the ability he He's a charmer. He knows he's a charmer. He knows how to use that 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 personality to manipulate. There's I don't know if it's psychopath. I don't know if it's psycho- psychopathy, but it is socially malignant, you know, to 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 have those charms and use them the way Malcolm's using them here. Uh, yeah, I think it's certainly the most Martin like he's ever been. This whole section of the episode. So here's the thing about psychopaths. <laughs> Is that um, you can have psychopathic behavior, but you don't have sort of like the the commingling of violent tendencies as well. So, you know, like some successful people have some pretty psychopathic tendencies or sociopathic tendencies of like using people to get ahead and different things that that happen. Malcolm has 
innately some of these abilities. I mean, I'm thinking back to the sex dungeon where he's using torture again as a tool to get information. What you said with Idrissa and working with Ainsley. So there's there's a lot that he does, but Martin doesn't see it. Martin sees it here. And it, so I think this is part of the the reason, you know, that Martin gets confirmation that we're the same. Not the fact that Malcolm's now stamped him twice, but the next level of I, I think you've changed. I know you I know you've changed. I need you to do this. Malcolm is opening Pandora's box by enabling Martin to go back to being that human that he was or that subhuman that he was when he was a murderous psychopath. He, he's got to hope that Martin can turn it off. It's a calculated. It's bet. not a turn it off, though, right? Because Malcolm, I mean, Malcolm reveals at the end. He, it's not a turn it off. It's, it's you never changed. Right. So it's, it's Malcolm has to feel like he is in control of the situation, and by, by feeding Martin's delusion of and saying things like, "I know you've changed. I've seen it, but I just need you to go be the surgeon again this time." Malcolm is thinking, "This is who you are." I'm just saying, you can hurt this one person. That's what you want to do anyway, you know. So Malcolm is just saying what he needs to to pull the strings. But I don't think it, it's we can't lose sight of the fact that Malcolm never believed his father actually changed as it turned out. That being said, I'm curious because you are a murder true crime fan. What did you think of seeing Martin come out with his bug eyes and, and seeing him in his element as first the screams coming from the barn as Martin as Malcolm was pacing outside? How, how did that hit all of you? Uh, again, it's just some phenomenal acting on, on Michael Sheen's part. He comes out and he's just like so bewildered and, you know, but he like regains his composure. He's like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we're okay. I, I just really enjoy. <laughs> okay. I got to preface this again. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a psychopath myself, but I just enjoyed allowing him to be in his element where he, he did all this stuff and, and it, it's all just folklore for us like we didn't see like i would love a martin spinoff like i would love an origin show for martin like how did we get to 23 like up until like when he gets arrested i think that would be like a a phenomenal watch i just don't know how they would get michael sheen to you know de-age the way that they did malcolm earlier this season i i really enjoyed allowing michael the 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 breath to kind of come out and kind of just i feel like that was all him you know just coming out just being like where in the world am i what just happened but like in a way he almost like there was like a tinge of a smile on his face there was there was a lot going on and i just a lot I, I liked the screaming. That was a little, little much. I was a fan of it. Yeah, and no, him coming out and 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 squeezing his eyes and rubbing his eyes together, the shaking off. It was almost like he was coming out of a murder trance. Yeah, and uh, it was it was it I was think, pretty. I gotta, I gotta come back to. It was reality. pretty top notch. And then yeah, you're. I, I, I wish I had pulled the audio for it, but him saying to, to Malcolm, it's okay, it's okay. You know, shaking off. He's saying it to himself though too, right? It's mm-hmm. all about maintaining this delusion of I am a changed man. Yeah, that guy's alive in there. He he doesn't he's not happy about still being alive because of how I left him. He had him. a quip. He had the wherewithal to come out with a quip. Yeah, I think that's just how Martin rolls. I think Martin is just a quippy motherfucker. But all of that was just so good at, again, Martin having to be like, all right, well, we had this one little aberration, but now we're back in it. Now we're cosplaying again where I'm a normal dad who doesn't murder people or torture them within an inch of their life. And by the way, great news. The girl is close by. He says the child is close by, which means like to me, I was just like, that's such a, a term of endearment. Like it's it's not saying she's nearby. It's saying a child like, you know, that she's got a connection to this world. 
Right. Well, again, it's part of this Martin. It's part of Martin's fantasy. It's part of his own Truman show that he has set up this idea of we're, we're working together. We're a team. We're, we're Claire and Cameron. We're Claire and Cameron saving a girl. We're, we're, we're changing the world here kind of thing. And Malcolm's just like, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what we're doing. All of that being said, and I think this plays into Malcolm being the most Martin-like and, and maybe in some ways then being the most true to himself, his hands not shaking. I think that was so significant that he looks, he pulls up his hand to his face. He looks at it because I think he's expecting it to be shaking. I think he's expecting a tremor there because of how high stress this situation is. The fact that he has instructed his father to go torture a man for information, crossing all sorts of lines as only a Whitley can do. I think he's expecting his hand to be shaking and is shocked and maybe a little dismayed that it's not. What was the significance of the hand not uh, having any tremors for you that he's more like martin than he is willing to let on yes he's been in tons and dozens of high stress situations that we've seen him in and his hand tremors but now this is where there's actually torture going on at the hands of his father that he just enabled that he gave the green light for and there's no tremor so i'm just like i was like oh no he's he's going over to the dark side himself not that i think that that's real but i mean just in terms of like his own thought process and his own like the the neurological things that are going on right now that some switch might be flipped right now and when he's in these types of situations like what vivian said when friar pete was onto their affair she says to him 60 beats a minute this is a disaster how are you so calm he goes it's tuesday you know he's calm under pressure where his liberties at stake this is martin i'm talking about that his liberties at stake maybe malcolm has some of, the, of those tendencies some of those genes where when the stakes are at their highest he doesn't have this hand tremor highest for himself maybe i mean we started this episode by talking about is it possible that martin changed at the end of the day i think the other big question in this episode that this episode is asking is are martin and malcolm the same is Mar- has martin been right on this front are malcolm and him the same i mean after all like you mentioned just a couple minutes ago he's now stabbed his father twice he's lied to martin's face really convincingly a number of times he manipulates him like a sociopath in this episode are they the same is he the darkness? Is he going to the dark side? Or is he the darkness already just revealing itself? I think it's the darkness revealing himself. I, I, and, and again, I'm going to come back to that Ainsley conversation where she said that she knew growing up that she was half darkness, half her dad, but also half light like her mom and kindness and brave and, and, and all the things that she lists about Jessica. But you can't deny your biology, right? So there is this darkness in the two of them. And Ainsley has shown it in a very not public way, but in a much more forceful way where Malcolm's likenesses to Martin are so much more subtle, more so of using the mind, which is most most likely how Martin lured his victims in, was able to conceal his crimes for so long, was able to buy a plane and not have anybody know about it to be able to cover his tracks so well. And I feel that that's where Malcolm's really at is that this darkness is in him and he's been aware of it. He's been aware of it throughout this, these last two seasons where he's gone on a Martin cleanse, where he's said to Dr. Whitley, when he was in Claremont, he says, I, I now know the part of you that's there after it was very early on the season where he, they were talking about chopping up Nicholas Endicott. I now know that that part of you is there and I can close it up and put it away forever. That darkness is there, and I feel like Malcolm is just tapping into it when he needs it, but I'm wondering 
how much control he's going to be able to have over it, given that there's this new set of traumas that have played out in this episode and, and last episode as well. It's going to be interesting to see when it's picked up how this story continues, because there's there's a lot that's going on in the last 10 minutes of this episode. What Malcolm does and what Malcolm goes through is some dark ass shit. Let's play this clip because this takes us to the end of the Martin and Malcolm uh, discussion. And I think it's a great way to sum up the discussion. I was a good father. You? You were never a good son. You're going to kill me. Ten seconds ago. That's when you decided. There's no other way. Yes, there is. Oh, the squishy noises. All oh, the squishy noises. <sighs> Would Martin have actually killed Malcolm? Or was this his attempt at, like, death by cop or attempted death by son? You know, playing on your theory that he couldn't go back to Claremont. Like, that just wasn't an option for him. This played right into my theory, I think. There was this change, right? So Malcolm saw the switch, right? Dr. Whitley became the surgeon. Martin's eyes changed the music got darker but his face changed he looked around and he did this like look down and he looked at malcolm and then everything was different like his eyes were like dead he approached malcolm i don't think martin was going to kill malcolm i think this was death by by cop or death by son because he knew that there was no way that malcolm was going to let this go that he was going to let him escape that there was no way that he could go back to claremont that there was no way out for him. And again, Ainsley, Ainsley's my narrator this episode. She says they're both running out of moves. So I think Martin, this was his calculated his calculated plan here is that he, he was out of moves, out of options. He still had the knife and that was the one card he had left to play. If he was going to go down, it was not going to be, you know, death by cop or death by U.S. Marshal. It was going to be death by Malcolm. Right, I, I agree. And I, I, I like that line from Ainsley. I think it was really well placed. I think it without realizing it at the time, I think it set up the last five, seven minutes of the episode. The fact that these guys were in their end game, that this was the the end game and also kind of perfectly summarized their views on life, whether or not Malcolm is the darkness, whether or not he can keep it at bay. He does. I mean, he reads daily affirmations. He does have sunshine, the little cute parakeet. You know, for him, there is always another way. For Martin, he was at the end of his rope. And for him, there was no other way. I think it was so important to hear them both say that because the lunge and then the reverse, the ha- reversing the hand and stabbing him, you know, squishy noises included, was, again, just a perfect metaphor of how these two see life, how these two see each other, how these two see how you can continue to go forward, you know? How how did Malcolm continue to go forward the last 20 years? The same way we ask all the time, like, how did Jessica maintain her head being held high, keeping the name Whitley and still being like this socialite in New York? Like, how, these guys have all found a way to move forward. Martin didn't. Martin went to jail and just kind of stayed the same for 20 years because you can't change your psychopathy. But Malcolm and Jessica and even Ainsley, to a, to a lesser extent, Gil, like all these people had to find a way to move forward. They had to find that there was another way. Martin never had to really confront that. And here, he, he this is the only option the way he sees it. Um, 
And and I think Malcolm always figured that there was, quote unquote, another way. Yeah. So really, really interesting, really interesting way to end the season, because it really is kind of a classic season finale, especially when you add Danny in coming over the bluff and then saying, you know, Bright, what did you do? Uh, oof. Gives me chills. Gives me chills just thinking about it again. I watched that end scene a couple times just because I wanted to – I carved the audio up a little bit for different uh, pieces here. And I was blown away by it every single time. Every single time it also felt like it had like a different meaning or it took like a different like facet for it for me too. I think we need to get to Jessica, Gill, and Vivian because this was the other big storyline that wrapped up and unfolded in this episode. So let's listen to this clip. Oh, please, Gil, say something. Capshaw was harboring a fugitive called you, and you didn't tell anyone. I was weak. I've wanted to be free of him for so long. Do you know how many crimes you just admitted to? I will make a statement. Tell them everything. Consequences be damned. We don't have that leverage anymore. She's already the victim. That's the way they all see it. Well, I have to do something. I know that look, Jess. But fine. If this year has taught me anything, it's that we have to learn from our mistakes. Some mistakes are just too big. So we talked last week a bit about the fallout that would happen if Gil learned that Jessica had gotten this call from Vivian and hadn't said anything. And, and we, we spent time talking about how Gil assuring her that having thoughts about Martin being dead didn't make her a bad person, that thoughts don't make you bad, it actions that matter. Gil would never have endorsed a real-world situation where Jessica got information and sat on it, that it was all hypothetical in his head, her actively trying to play a role in Martin's demise. If Gil knew that she actually had gotten information and was sitting on it that could have helped this case, he would be furious that it would be something along the lines of a, a mistake too big to fix. And we saw that tonight, where we saw that at least initial reaction. The way it plays out over the course of the episode, does is Gil sticking to that? Is is this the end of Gilsica? Or by the end of the episode, has Gil kind of already moved past it? Initially, it definitely looked like this was a very final subplot that um, that Gil was delivering, like the like a read between the lines kind of a message. Because Jessica's reaction was was like, oh my, like oh my, and her, she looks very stung when he delivers that line about like some mistakes being too big. There is a change towards the end of the episode, though. There's definitely that softening. Things went the way that they wanted to. You know, the at the end of the day, the you know everyone was saved. Gil was angry, and he he wanted to let her know that you know this this is <laughs> when he says, "Do you know how many crimes that you just admitted to?" And she looks at him like like what? <laughs> she looks a little a little confused at at how that would end up being a crime. But she knows it was wrong. But I don't think she thought it was criminal. This is not the end of Gilsica. This was him being angry and probably remembering the words, you know, the, the Whitleys are cursed ringing in his ears. But um, ultimately, I think that that Gilsica will continue Too reminiscent of Slave to Love dancing in the garage. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree because it worked out in the end because, you know, she was able to coax Vivian into such a violent confession. I think Gil is willing to like already kind of move past it. So in the end, maybe there aren't, you know, mistakes that are too big to fix. 
had Vivian gotten away with it and his, you know, he continued to have had his hands tied where now Malcolm was still this presumed guilty party where the wrong people were winning and the wrong people were losing. I think it would have been a lingering issue, but because it wrapped up the way it did, Gil is already kind of, you know, he can't quit her, you know, and, and, you know, uh, moving on from people you love is always difficult, if not impossible, you know, so he was already going to be dealing with that. So as soon as he has, I think, an opening to maybe to begin begin to forgive her and get back to that sweet, sweet loving that he wants so badly from her, um, <laughs> I think he's going to, you know, jump all over that. Do you think Gil used his leverage over Jessica feeling real guilt over this to get her into this dangerous confrontation with Vivian? Or do you think that she volunteered willingly, seeing as how she was like, I got to do something? She probably suggested it, and he jumped all over it. Gil has a ha- Gil has a pattern of using people, kind of like Malcolm's using in this episode. You know, Gil has his own sociopathic tendencies of manipulating people to do what he wants when they feel bad about things. We've seen him manipulate yep. Malcolm into doing the right thing to make up for some perceived wrong that he thinks Malcolm has done, so he gets him to do kind of his bidding. And I think that's the same thing here. I mean, she says in that confessional you know well, i'll try and fix it you know i'll do something whatever it is to fix it so you could atone right. for my mistakes and he's like well some things are too big to fix but what we didn't see was him going but <laughs> if you want to have a dinner party a psychotic dinner party while we wait outside you know and that seems kind of right in gill's wheelhouse that's kind of like you know a very on brand for how gill kind of operates you know i have an opening here i wouldn't ask you to do this but you are the one who kind of fucked you know, you fucked up here. So if you want to make it up, you if know, you want to unfuck it. Here you go. Right. If you want to unfuck <laughs> it. Well, here's what you can do. It feels like it had that kind of energy to me. Is it believable that Marshall Ruiz and everyone else other than the team would continue to turn a blind eye to the evidence floating around that implicates Vivian? There are so many there's so many pieces of evidence at that beach house that implicate Vivian not telling a true story. You know, Martin and Malcolm's neither Martin nor Malcolm's fingerprints are going to be on the knife that stabbed her in the chest, the knife that she's carrying in her hand. There's all sorts of DNA there, I'm sure of Malcolm and Martin fluid from the torture chamber and stuff. You have the voicemail. You have you have the recording that Ainsley does of her admitting to having Martin and Malcolm kind of sending, you know, handing himself over, surrendering himself to her. There's so much there, at least to implicate her, at least to, again, warrant further further investigation. We talked about this last week, and there's only more so now. It's crazy to me that they didn't look at her harder. Am I being too nitpicky? No, because this was where, even I think last week, I don't know if it was you or I who said, I'm like, you know, but the, the line that I remember say, you know, hearing is that, but it's only Vivian's fingerprints on the knife right now because she stabbed herself. Like she didn't have the time to get like Martin's hand on the knife unless she did it prior and somehow she's like overlaying over his. There are so many holes in this. Like you said, you just pointed out in the question, so many holes in this that it's actually laughable now that the U.S. Marshals are nodding along with Vivian in the interrogation room that Malcolm was the one with the cruel eyes and, and you know, only there for his father. And when it comes out that there was more to the story than the way that Vivian's telling it, you like you said, with the voicemail that Ainsley has and the what's in her storage locker in um, upstate New York, 
all of this is just it's it's not something that the U.S. Marshals are taking willingly unless they're just looking for an easy close to this case and be like, well, Martin Martin Whitley fits the profile of someone who would take a hostage and then take his son. It just seems like they're just washing their hands of it. It's not that believable to me. It's really laying heavily on the idea that Martin is the surgeon. And so he is automatically and unwaveringly the only possible bad actor. We don't even want to look at other information that may tilt, uh, you know, otherwise, because we need to get this guy back behind bars or dead. We, we don't we don't want you muddying up any of the waters with evidence unless it supports that the surgeon is the vicious monster that we believe him to be and have told people he is. That's the only narrative that works for them. And so they're willing to sweep under the rug anything that would point to Vivian being guilty of stuff or even, you know, being guilty at helping breaking Martin out, you know, or any of the crimes that she is accused of. The fact that you have to go to this dinner party where she violently tries to kill Jessica after talking about torturing Malcolm and Martin that you have to go to that length to even get an investigation. And so, and now it goes from investigation to we've got enough to put her away. Like you've got the marshals yeah. and, and everyone has really just skipped over the entire middle step of at least looking at her. Right. Investigating. <laughs> right, and, right, right. And also, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Marshall Ruiz is thinking that, you know, Martin will be shot on site. So, you know, if for her, it'll be neatly buttoned up and this, this woman can just go away. Right. And dead men tell no tales kind of thing. And if right. Mal- if Malcolm can wind up dead, too, so that he doesn't throw some kind of smoke bomb, you know, some kind of stink bomb into her narrative, that would be great. Also, if everyone could be dead, except, you know, that I want dead. So, you know, I don't look stupid here. That would be wonderful. Yeah, she'll so. she'll shed no tears over that. Uh, I, I got to play this line, uh, this clip, because I know it was probably a favorite line of yours in the episode. No! <sighs> Sorry, Viv. It's going to take more than two martinis and a couple of Valium to take me down. That's breakfast in this family. That was fantastic. I, I, I knew I knew you would like that one. What'd you think of the battle royale? Did was this the, was this the knockdown drag out death match that you were looking for between Vivian and Jessica? I, I loved it. I thought it was really really well done. I think the way that they choreographed this fight to go around the room and using different weapons and and just showing who's really in control, not Vivian. It's Jessica the entire time. I just liked how she was so commanding. And she was like, you don't scare me. And even knowing what she's done, what Vivian's done, Jessica's still not afraid of her. And she's just like, well, you're now you're hurting my cubs, you know? Right. You're coming at me from a different angle. And, and you awaken a different beast when you you involve children. Yeah, she's moms. a, I mean, she may be by, a Whitley by marriage, but she's a Whitley though. And, you know, she she's already taken someone down in this series, right? With uh, the Tom Ford heel to the ear. Jessica is not someone to fuck with. And when whoa, you- whoa, hold on. Jessica has thrown lamps and she threw a lamp at the guy at Nicholas Endicott's yeah, yeah, body. Man. She smashed a plate on Nicholas Endicott's head in Scheherazade. She did the Tom Ford- 
shoe in the ear. She's got some like street cred where she's not going to be afraid to like take you down any way that she can. Uh, Shahrazad was the one that Zuckerman's wrote. Yeah, no, I read. No, Jessica's a badass, and she's she's willing to fight when when her back is up against the wall or she feels like her family's certain. Listen, I think all of this goes completely differently. I don't think Jessica ever even says anything about Vivian and what she knows, if not for Malcolm getting taken along for the ride. If if Malcolm is just left in the chamber or never winds up in the beach house at all, Jessica keeps her mouth completely shut. I think she was willing to live with the consequences of what would have ever happened to Martin with Vivian. I think it's Malcolm getting caught up into it, which is what we predicted. You know, we were predi- we predicted that when Jessica last week we talked about when Jessica finds out that Malcolm is now involved, that may shake Jessica's uh, lips loose, and it did. Yeah, I, I think she she has a very strong protective mother instinct. It's one of the things that makes her a great mother. Is she's and and an over smothering mother also. You know, an overbearing mother is the same. It's the same side of the of the coin that makes her a violent mother when she is. Uh, uh, backed up against the wall or her kids are in danger. All of that being said, man, could Gil have waited any longer to fucking rush in and, and arrest <laughs> this woman? How, how long does it take to get from the van to the front to the door of the dining room once you hear all this shit going down? Come on, man. I yeah, mean, yeah was, he definitely waited long, but for, good for them for waiting because then at least we got the spectacular view of Vivian splaying across the table, landing on her ass. I mean, literally, I think this woman was never treated this way in her whole life. I don't think any of this has ever happened to her. And she was just so out of control this whole time that I enjoyed watching Jessica take her down. But yeah, Gil Gil could have like left <laughs> ten more seconds. I think Vivian would have been unconscious for sure. Or worse. Yeah, he it's a great line when he comes in and says, We got here just in time and she says, uh, you know, I could have taken her. And she's like, No, no, I meant for Vivian's sake that right. she got there just in time. When when she gives that headbutt when uh Vivian is choking her with the fire poker from behind mm-hmm. and she like just whacks her head backwards, that's a badass move, man. You can break someone's nose that way. Listen. Yeah. And you, you you had a great uh, a great point that we cannot state enough. The choreography in the scene they use that in that living room that living room that dining room is huge. It is so long, and they danced around the entire fucking thing. And I was so there for it. It was fantastic yeah. watching them maneuver around it. Really well executed set piece. It was like an action movie. I was really impressed by it. You know, we're wrapping up here. We don't have that much left to talk about. Uh, I think we do need to talk about Ainsley quickly, though. She's running downstairs. She's picking up, trying to pick up the telephone. Then she finds there's a fax machine in her father's office, an old school fax machine banging around in the cabinet. She takes the fax and she's like, you got to be kidding me. But she doesn't seem terribly shocked. Is this all Ainsley just learning stuff now? Or is this all pointing to Ainsley was really more involved in Martin and his research and his escape and maybe had he actually gotten free and Vivian not interfered, would Ainsley have continued to be involved in Martin's escape? First of all, what other treasures exist in Martin's little office dungeon there? I mean, the, the fax machine bang, like bumping and grinding in his cabinet, metal cabinet, maybe jump a freaking mile. Yeah. But- <laughs> it was great. I loved. I loved hearing it bang around. It reminded me of. Uh, reminded me of like something out of like Harry Potter. 
like the vanishing cabinet or something. I was actually thinking of when Dumbledore goes to visit young Tom Riddle and he makes the stuff rattle yes. inside the wardrobe, the yes. stolen the stolen trinkets that Tom had, had taken from the other kids at the orphanage. The rattling made me think of that. Yeah, but like the horror element of this episode made me jump in my skin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it definitely. And then they ramped it up to the, the music shrieked at just the right moment. And, right. Yeah. Oh, it was all well done. You couldn't make out any of the words, by the way, but when you freeze frame it, you can see it's addressed to Ainsley and it's signed by it's signed dad in all capital letters. The resolution of the screen was too little to make out what he's asking in the middle, but presumably it's you got to go to my office at Claremont and get, and X, get the, X, Y, and Z files. Right. But uh, yeah, I just like that you could see the Ainsley and the dad on it. I think she was just like dismayed that she has to go to Claremont and it's going to obviously alert the police to, to different activities and it might draw some questions about well what was your involvement why would he fax you um i think it was just heat that she didn't want because i think the original plan was for her to be part of this woodsman theory and and having it that activity play out yeah i think one of the reasons that she starts sticking her nose in everyone's business the reason she goes to vermont the reason that she went with danny to the beach house and and the reason she was moving all that along was because i think she was trying to stay involved in the case not as a reporter for once but because she was supposed to be martin's accomplice so i think she was i think she's trying to stay close to the action as it unfolded in case the opportunity arose where she would be able to help her father or assist him and or get back to whatever the original plan was that was that was my feeling so shifting a little bit seeing as how ainley ainsley you know took her herself along with the team were you happy that jt seemed to be hashtag team bright this episode I was, I was, I, you know, I, I like JT and Malcolm and I like their dynamic has always been, this guy's crazy, but I felt like over the two seasons, JT had been, had grown to this guy's crazy, but he's one of us. And that scene by the ambulance and JT and Gil, even in that episode, a couple of episodes ago, really like, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like the way they turned on Malcolm so quickly or at least it seemed like they turned on malcolm so quickly jt especially calling him maybe just like making up things like a mouthpiece for like the surgeon i didn't like any of that so to see him have malcolm's back and 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 even doing it in his jt way of saying the guy's crazy but he's not that crazy and he's not crazy like that the, yeah. the fact that they were unanimous in when listening to Vivian's side of the story, the fact that Danny, JT, and Gil were unanimous in their support for Malcolm and that she was lying, that made me feel really, really happy. I was I was super psyched by that. Yeah, it has that notion of, uh, I, I even said it last week, is like, we, you and I, like, say, like, we're siblings, like, you know, we can have our disagreements, but if somebody else comes in, be like, uh-uh, you don't, you don't mess with this. You know, like I can mess with you, but nobody from the outside can mess with you because then, then we got a problem. Right. It's very much part of like the sibling feeling that JT mm-hmm. and Malcolm have, like where JT is like the much older brother who just gives his younger brother all sorts of shit all the time. Exactly. It was like, yeah, I can call him a weirdo, but you you keep your hands off of him. That but was there's the- also like he's coming from a place of love and respect, you know. Yes, 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 for sure. And I liked how JT was with Danny, you know, when he walks in and she's having a moment and and he jokes about how they've all learned things from from Malcolm, you know, including like, you know, hiding your feelings down deep. I liked all that. I liked JT being kind of the Greek chorus, acknowledging the role Malcolm has had and the influence and the effect he's had on this team and also treating Danny gently because he understands that there's feelings that go beyond just professional feelings involved there they you know yeah. they didn't need to say it that, that jt and danny are so close that they didn't need to have a whole song and dance about 
Danny and Malcolm and their romantic feelings. JT gets it and he yeah. gets what she's going through, but you know, and he saves her the indignity of having to talk about it, you know, where he could just put him back on business. Uh, the team in, or the team being uh, JT, Danny and Ainsley in the Maple Mountain Sheriff's office, I thought was top notch this week watching them kind of work together which we don't get to see them do work a scene like that usually it's malcolm rushing in first and then they kind of come in and clean up so i i wanted to ask you what was more impressive jt's detective skills on the state of the office and how things didn't seem right with pointing out the old coffee and all that stuff or was it danny's kind of moving off to the side and doing the stealthy takedown which impressed you more i gotta give props to jt just being able to pick up so ainsley was like what's wrong here but JT already had it figured out. I thought that was much more impressive that he was just, you know, from the cold coffee, the guy just opened up. There's something wrong. Let me look in the in the, the garbage can. And he finds the treasure, right? The bloody cloth. Notwithstanding, Danny's takedown of Sheriff Cooley was magnificent. The, the stealthy, you know, step to the side and then just come up behind her. But I, I think the I think the award for this episode goes to JT's detective skills. Because it was also in a sheriff's office, it was in a cop's office. And it was, again, this idea that JT just loves being a cop, that he would understand. These guys just got to work. The day is just starting and the cop hasn't made fresh coffee. And yet we see Fern drinking coffee. So he knows that she's drinking cold coffee just to try and have a veneer of things are normal. All of that. I loved him putting kind of like in real time, putting that all together. I thought it was yeah. pretty top notch and and not in a predictable way. That's not like how you see those things kind of unfold. Right. Usually it's like you see a leg sticking out from behind something or, <laughs> yeah. or, or the bloody rag is really obvious. Not that you go digging in like the garbage can for it kind of thing. Yeah. So. And just the detail of seeing fresh grounds in the garbage can, which in his detective mind is like, well, they're covering something up because then the coffee's more aromatic than whatever is probably it's sitting on top of. So there's a lot there's a lot of detail that happens in a very short amount of time in his detective brain here. So that's why I think he gets the award. All of that being said, I love when he says, you don't have to be afraid of me, but you do have to be afraid of her. And then yeah. seeing Danny kind of come in and uh, kick some ass and put her down uh, it was great. Uh, I, I it just reminded me, though, that I'm really sad that we did not get to have Aurora on this season. If nothing else, I hope we get a season three pickup just so we can interview her because I would love to pick her brain about Danny Powell and what that character has been through in the last uh, two seasons. And how complex she is, yeah. Uh, Sheila, I think we're just about done here. I think we really just have to do our Adresis Corner, our final Adresis Corner, at least for final for now. Uh, Hit me up with what you thought about Adresa in the one quick scene we got to see her in tonight. Yeah, it was really, really short. But I feel like this is just a a throwback, a callback to her Killabusters episode a couple episodes ago. Her web sleuthing connections really helped her get Capshaw's records that she'd worked so hard to suppress, right? Because before, when we saw with uh, Dr. Stengel that the records that he got, that she was squeaky clean. But so what Adresa found, she says, she's cute. She goes, well, let's not dwell on the legality. Like now all eyes are looking at her, her file, right? Right. So, um, so it shows that Capshaw is responsible for 11 deaths at eight hospitals. Mike, that is quite a carnage trail. We talked about a little bit of was Martin her first victim? How many victims did she have at her hospitals? And so we were both kind of right, though, I think, in the end, that Martin was her first non-hospital victim, it seems like, but that she did have a trail of bodies that had been buried behind her at various hospitals that she had worked in. Um, And how fucked up on the hospitals that they were complicit in covering all of that up, you know, but she must have just bounced around so often that, you know, leave one hospital, have the 
records buried uh, is to go to a new hospital. No one ever hears about what happened at the last hospital. And she just kind of kept rolling that and parlaying that into into different murders and stuff. She really is an impressive serial killer all on her own. It, you know, it would have been interesting to get more of her origin story to hear more about how she first got started. You know, something interesting Malcolm says a couple times in this episode is how the woodsman is trying to impress the surgeon. And the woodsman, even when confronted with the surgeon, he has that boastful moment of, you know, I'm better than, you know, you've been out of the game for decades at this point, and I'm I'm better than you even you're then. You're not on my level. Yeah, you're not on my level. Like, really kind of, like, flexing for the surgeon. And this idea that the that Vivian and her serial killing was probably inspired and or trying to get the approval of the surgeon. You know, the idea of a spinoff, the, the effect that the surgeon has had on the serial killing world, at least in the Northeast, is fantastic, and I would love to know more about it, um, because it seems like it's a recurring thing. So many of the serial killers that we've come across in this series had been inspired by or were looking for the approval of the surgeon or a surgeon copycat like thing. It really world builds. It really gives you a sense of how massive Martin and his killings were to this crime subset. It's really it's really an interesting thing. If you sit and think about it, it's really kind of fascinating how far flung his influence has been. Yeah, I mean, the pilot, like I, I keep coming back to it, but it's something good to watch. Like as you're nearing the end of a season, it's something good to go back to the beginning. The very first case of the week was a copycat surgeon killer. I think it's really just a, a very well-told story. I just have enjoyed the throwbacks to Martin, the influence that he's had on people like Vivian, the people like the woodsman. So it's a it's an interesting arc that they've created that they can really dive into. So I'm hoping that there's more. I'm hoping there's more, too. And I think that takes us really to the end here. What's next? What comes next? I'm hesitant to speculate what a season three looks like, but I do want your opinion on whether or not you think Martin is dead. I don't think so. I mean, that is a gusher of a wound. Um, but then keep in mind, like, when he got stabbed in the ribcage by Malcolm in season one, that was in a very, a very important area as well. It's in the lung area and the ribcage, and there's lots of important things that are right there. The only thing that has me concerned about Martin is their remoteness, is how far from, you know, a, a trauma hospital that they would be. But I don't think he's dead. I don't think, I think the way that this story was playing out was that they were anticipating a season three. So I don't think he's dead. I don't think he's dead either, and I'm I'm putting all of my evidence on this there's another way storyline. All right, Malcolm has been pretty clear that he doesn't want his father dead. Even with realizing Martin made the decision just in the last 10 seconds to kill him, when he says there's no other way and he lunges and Malcolm grabs his hand, turns it, stabs him, again, in that lower abdomen section, a, a precision strike that these two are known for and have discussed at length, him saying there is another way totally indicates to me that I have incapacitated you in a very serious way, but not in a way that's going to kill you because you need to live. You need to live. I'm thinking about what Tom said last week during our interview. He needs Martin to live because there's so much unresolved shit that he needs Martin to help explain to him and understand about himself, but he can't have him loose. So there is another way. And I think that's what that means. I think him saying that there is another way as he's stabbing his father is indicating that he has stabbed him in a way and in, in a place 
uh, like we saw earlier last season that would would put Martin down, but not in a fatal way, which also is great way to pick up for a season three opener where Danny says, you know, they repeat, Bright, what have you done? And then he turns and they're like, he's he's not dead. He's, you know, right. I've just, I, I've struck him in his blah, 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 which, you know, yeah. which, right, which we need to get him airlifted. It's serious, but it won't kill him as long as he gets treated soon kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, that That's to me how season three picks up if if we get so lucky. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that there'll be something. It's it's there are too many streaming services out there and Prodigal Son has been very popular on like HBO Max and things like that. So I, I think that this would be a great show for a streaming service to pick up if they want to get new subscribers, if they want to pick up new viewers for this show. I think it would be I think this will do better on a, a more niche kind of a, a service like an HBO, like a Netflix, or whoever wants to pick it up. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. Guys, uh, that takes us to the end of this Surgeon Files episode. I just want to say thank you for listening. I want to say thank you again to Fox and their PR team for helping us with the interviews and arranging them and making all of that possible, making the talent and the cast and the creatives available week in and week out. But I really want to thank you guys. You know, every week I, I check the charts, I check the downloads. So many of you, are really thousands, Thousands of you are listening to this podcast every week and not just the United States and Canada, in Great Britain and across the world. I had Uzbekistan last week. We were popping yeah, off. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so I just a big thank you from me and from Sheila from Pod Clubhouse for listening, for commenting, for talking to us in the Reddit. I've talked to some of you guys on the Facebook groups, on Twitter. It means a lot. Uh, thank you for sharing this passion with us. If the show doesn't get picked up, this will be our final Surgeon's, fi- uh, Surgeon's Files podcast uh if it does get picked up we will be going back and doing season one doing a season one rewind just to fill the gaps for you um but you'll also probably get a special episode you know talking about the show getting picked up Uh, so fingers crossed that we get that i hope you've enjoyed listening sheila thank you for being a co-host on this ride with me i appreciate you thank you for having me here it's been a quite a wild ride and i've enjoyed every minute of it thank you all for listening and for the last time at least for now if you could don't forget to rate review and subscribe Subscribe to the Surgeon File podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to stab you in the gut and tell you that there's another way. Thanks for listening. Hope we hear from you soon. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.